and I just put a flub there. Make sure you edit that out. Hi, and welcome to episode 27 of The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And we're here to bring you a show for film geeks by film geeks. And that'll be us. How we been, Andy? Yeah, that's same. It's just the same old, same old, isn't it, at the moment? It's, it's our own personal Groundhog Day. It is Groundhog Day. I mean, I, did, did you um, venture towards any venues this weekend when, when all the pubs opened? You'd be pleased to know I did not. Wild horses couldn't have dragged me out well this done. weekend. I mean, I, I want to go and support some of the small local pubs, the, one, the ones Absolutely. who are non-chains, who are struggling. But this is not the time. And looking at some of the scenes that we had across the UK this weekend, uh, it, absolutely shocking, absolutely disgraceful. I posted a video that had been shared from a pub in Derby. Re- Revellers were like hugging each other and cheering on the football that was on the TV. And like loads of people tried to say to me, oh, that's, that's an old, old video. That's just fake. That's just fake. It's like, no, you can see the markings on the floor for social distancing. You can see the labels on the bars. You can see the perspex barrier there. You can also see the match derby versus forest on in the background yeah well they're not allowed to show football actually they are they're advised not to show sports but there's nothing to stop them so that pub is partly to blame for the activities of the morons who've gone in but the morons who've gone in are the biggest blame but it's that that whole denial i was just really saying exactly that it's people people not wanting to accept that the images that you're seeing are real like trying to make out oh that's from four years ago it's like no this is now this is the mentality of the people who are not taking this whole pandemic seriously. I've just been out just before we started recording, and I, I wear a mask. Now, I know there's, there's lots of conflicting government uh, rules and regulations on masks. Yep. Uh, I look at what's happening in the States. I've got friends in the States who wear masks just to, to, to leave the house. Uh, I, I think it's a great idea, I, and I don't understand why we've not pursued it as aggressively as we should, because... You know, I've just been in a supermarket and people stood clearly not a metre away from each other, just just a couple of feet. And I've sort of forgotten that we are still in the midst of a pandemic. The world's not gone back to normal. And that's what scares me more than anything else. Because as we said many times, this is when things will slip uh, and we'll be back. I don't want to be back into a lockdown situation. I want us to move forward. I really do want us to move forward. And I've been pleased to hear about the announcements about, you know, the the arts being finally getting some sort of recognition for funding. So yeah. anything that happens now, we're going to start losing venues, cinemas, pubs, clubs, the, the the lot. Don't want that to happen. But I do want people to be safe. It's important that we start reacting like a society rather than individuals. But that's the rant not to do with films. In this show today, we have got. Uh, Andy talking about Mystic River, which has been Andy's classic. We're doing a deep dive into Airplane. Surely you must be joking. We're not joking and don't call me Shirley. Andy's trawled the World Wide Web for news. And we're going to be looking at the life and career of the sadly lost Ennio Morricone. But first, Andy, what have we got? And bring me the news. So news-wise... Um, let's just link into the Corona situation. So Corona does impact on the world of film as we've covered every week. And at the moment, August film releases are now looking uncertain. There's been a sharp rise in cases in the US and the shutdown of both New York side and also 
California side is going into a shutdown again because of the sharp rise means that there's now once again uncertainty on dates so Tenet which had a new set of posters released last week which had the specific date 12th of August 2020 were then reissued a few days later just saying August 2020 (laughs) so (laughs) it's not looking good Um, It looks like they're already preparing to maybe move Tenet. And if Tenet moves to the back end of August, then Mulan's going to move to September and it'll be a knock-on effect. It's the saying now that it's literally whatever the schedule is that you see now, it'll just be everything moves by three or four weeks as one bulk shuffed. I was talking to someone in the know, just getting a bit of goss, getting a bit of up-to-date stuff. And and the word seems to be, and this this is just... Setting down information, so so don't take it as gospel. But if, yeah. if Mulan doesn't see a release date, then they will move it to Disney Plus because everything else is 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 now bottlenecking around the release of Mulan. Whilst I'm still hoping eventually to return to work next month, and I had two days at work last week while we were just um, sorting out odds and ends for being closed for another month. Oh, and that was such a nice experience to just be in a different environment again. <laughs> we're not holding our breath that we're going to be opened anytime soon, which um, is very sad for the industry. It is. I mean, it's people keep asking you, what's the thing that, that you miss the most? And uh, and it is the, it's not even the social aspect of going to the cinema. It's the going to the cinema in a, and watching a film in a new environment uh, and watching something yeah. on the screen, which is something, you know, it's the reason we do the show because we absolutely, we, we absolutely love it. But if there's no new content, and I know a couple of the cinema chains have opened, haven't they? Or about to. They're about to. <laughs> they might still stop. Yeah. I mean, the, the planning for all the... Um, old releases which tying into that the plans for the 4k restoration of empire strikes back have been scapped uh, scrapped yeah they're just getting uh, they're just getting the standard 2k release which is disappointing which i think would have been a reason to drag people in also yeah. I, I, while we're talking about tenant and mulan I, you know what what the cinema industry needs is clearly a film that's big bright and beautiful and, and a real attractor to bring you back into the films yeah with latest surveys in America suggesting that only 35% of people are marking as likely to return to cinemas before 2021. The big films need to be something spectacular. Yeah, if you're waiting all that time, you don't want you don't want something dour or, or an art house. So your, your old films that are readily available on DVD, Blu-ray, Netflix, whatever are not going to be enough to entice people to come back. No. It has to be something new, something that people are wow, I need to see this now before everyone else does. Tenet is critical on this one. This is the critical film. Nolan's films always bring a lot of people in, and the secrecy around this film has just kept people on tenterhooks. This is the only one that has the potential to bring people back to cinemas. I would say Bond. Bond would have been a safe ground to, to open cinemas on. But there's now talk that, that Bond is just going to open next year. Yeah, it's looking more likely. Um, at the meantime, uh, the, all the restrictions on shooting are being relaxed bit by bit. In the UK, the guidelines are being issued for safe filming this week so that productions can start up on Mission Impossible 7, Batman, Jurassic World, Fantastic Beasts, and a plethora of other films that have been sat waiting for that opportunity to start shooting. Um, in New Zealand, things are already underway, which we've mentioned before, with the Lord of the Rings TV series for Amazon, Power Rangers, Cowboy Bebop, are all back to production and uh, the avatar sequels and the power of the dog have both been granted border exceptions to allow filming to resume for them shang chai is about to start that's ready to start filming at the end of the month and that's in australia isn't it 
Yeah. So whilst there may be nowhere to see the films, they're, they're at least getting made. So <laughs> we do have a positive 2021 to look forward to, but 2020 at this point in time, we should just give it up as a lost cause. It, it's feeling like a write-off. I think think maybe historians should look back and just go, it was a hangover. We'll just pick <laughs> it up on 2021. Let's move on. We mentioned that Jurassic World Dominion will be hopefully starting shooting pretty soon in the UK. It's also been revealed that the original stars will be key characters and not just a blink and miss it cameo like we saw in the total bait and switch of Fallen Kingdom, which, as you can remember, heavily trailered Goldblum's Ian Malcolm character throughout his whole product like marketing, only for him to pop up literally for about one minute of screen presence. Yeah, I'm going to say, all in all, it was less than five minutes. Uh, well, Laura Dern and Sam Neill are joining the party this time, and the, they've all been doing the rounds talking about how they are key and significant to the story, and they won't just be one scene and go. Whether or not that turns out to be the truth, and whether we get bait and switched again, I don't particularly care, because I've, I've lost all love for this franchise. <laughs> I was just about to say that. I, mean, I remember when it was exciting, when we, we were looking forward to a new Jurassic Park movie, and now you're just thinking, don't screw it up. I wonder if there'll be a scene where a T-Rex um, actually saves the day, because they've not done that before in any of the... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they have. Yeah, moving on. I've lost all motivation for this franchise. Uh, when it came back as Jurassic World, on the build-up to that film coming out, I was excited. And then I watched Jurassic World and went, oh, oh, okay. So that's the fourth best Jurassic Park film so far. <laughs> Which seems like it was the fourth film. That kind of puts it into perspective. And as for the last one, that was utter, utter, utter nonsense. Yeah, it was all over the place. But yet such a great director connected to it as well. I'm more enamoured, though with um, Aaron Sorkin's Trial of the Chicago 7. Yeah, now, from what I know, there's been a bit of a bidding war on this script, and it looks like Netflix have won out again. Yep, Netflix have closed the deal, managing to snap it up. And the story, for those who don't know, it's based on the true story of the 1968 Democrat Party convention, which saw an anti-Vietnam War carnival that turned nasty. Bricks were thrown, tear gas fired, fires struck throughout the cities, curfews in place that just exaggerated the riots. And whilst independent investigators highlighted eight police and eight protesters who sparked it all off, the police were never brought to charge. One of the protesters was jailed straight away for contempt and left the other seven, the Chicago seven, trying to fight the charges brought against them. Solid drama, the kind of thing that Sorkin really gets his teeth into as well. I mean, yeah, Sorkin with courtroom dramas, just, oh, that just makes me salivate. Well, you know that the dialogue will just be exceptional. I mean, he's, he's one of the most gifted dialogue writers. So much so that he packs so much dialogue into his scripts that you have to watch the film three times before you pick up on the whole thing. Yeah. But you've got names like Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Michael Keaton, William Hurt, amongst others involved in this film. And yeah, Netflix. I, I think people like Sorkin, like we've seen with Scorsese, I think this going to digital streaming works for their kind of films now. I think we've gone past that point where those kind of names brought people into the cinema for big box office draw. And we're now in a situation that people go to the cinema for the spectacle. I have to agree. Disappointingly so that, you know, someone like a Scorsese, someone like a Sorkin doesn't have that pull anymore. Yeah. But when you'll have got on an opening night on Netflix, literally tens of millions of people sat watching your film. It becomes a bit of a no brainer, doesn't it? That there is that market there for those filmmakers. It's the whole new environment of movie watching that we culture that we live in. That now it is literally segmented into these are your cinema ones. 
these are your home ones. And it's the big names of yesteryear, the ones who always used to draw us in as like, well, film files back in the day when we used to see the names of Sorkin, Scorsese, etc. up on the posters. That would be a draw for us. But now that's the draw for us to sit at home and watch them on TV. So do you think we've entered into a new age where, apart from Nolan, is there not a place for director-led projects? Are we looking at a time when it's the IP that's outselling rather than the talent and even the the actors? It's definitely the, the IP. There are still a few actors whose name can kind of guarantee some kind of success. The Rock, his... His name being on something at least gets it some focus. Even if the film isn't that good, he still brings in a crowd. But I think we are more in an IP-led environment. That It's a franchise. It's a recognisable name that draws you in. Even when it comes to horrors. I mean, we know that the low-budget horrors do well enough because the low-budget and people always love a good horror. But when you look at like all the Stephen King films, they always market them on Stephen King's name. Yeah, yeah. So it's always Stephen King's Tommy Knocker, Stephen King's Doctor Sleep, Stephen King's Gerald's Gate. They never market them on the director or the stars involved in them. And that's because it's the franchise, it's the property that is more important for the big screen these days. The small screen is where they can say, oh, well, this is the new one from David Ayer. Oh, this is the new one from Sorkin. And that's what whets your appetite for sitting down and relaxing at home and watching what you know is going to be a stronger in quality kind of film, a more story focused one. I mean, you just have to look at how cinemas have evolved. You look at like the introduction of like 3D and 4DX and all the other gimmick aspects, that it is more about the boom whiz explosions on the screen these days. It is less about the sit back and relax. And not for people like me and you, because we're still drawn to that kind of... We are film files, film. after all. And we will always seek out any cinema that shows a more low-key kind of film. But I think for the general audience, and I, I think the coronavirus is definitely going to make it this case is that it has to be a big impact and nolan is the exception to the rule because he makes big budget spectacle films from an indie perspective and it's only because he his films always generate a huge amount of money that warners basically go yep you do what you want we're happy here's the cash here's the cash as soon as he makes one duff film that's going to stop while we're on the subject of directors and a slight rant Andy, over the last week, has there been any news on the Snyder Cut? Oh, you had to set me off. I did. I did. <laughs> I'm going to rate so, you in as well. Because uh... So you'll remember that we said that we weren't going to report on the Snyder Cut until there's actually something to report on. And there's still nothing to report on, despite the fact that Zack Snyder's been online posting clips and images and trying to make out that there's more stuff to report on. It's just stuff that he's already posted before, but don't. He's just added a couple more words over the poster image. So we can move on? Uh, well, no, because uh, we've also got Ray Fisher, who plays Cyborg in the DCEU. Yeah, so I saw this story, and I think we're going to both be, well, in total agreement with each other. He's been tweeting out claims that Joss Whedon was abusive towards him on set. And obviously, all the Snyder fan base have taken those words as gospel and have turned on Whedon. They've turned on Alan Tudyk, who has worked with Whedon and known him for 18 years, and only tweeted out, that doesn't sound like the guy that I know, but I wasn't there. Anyone who's liked that or retweeted it, saying, you know, Tudyk doesn't doesn't back it up, have been lambasted by the Snyder fan base, who've all jumped on, or anyone who's been supportive of Whedon in any way, even if he says, well, it might have happened, but we can't say for sure, 
all the fan base like, you weren't there. You don't know. Ray Fisher's been picked on. Yeah, but neither were you. You weren't there either. And this is only one person's uh, experience. Now, yeah. you and I, if we both worked in, 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 a, in a system where there is a lot of people, not everyone gets on with each other. But if it's yeah. that bad, then you go through. There's avenues to go right to raise to formal Absolutely. complaints and formal grievances against your boss. And why is Ray Fisher not actually done this? Oh, well, I'm sure he'll say that it's because Jeff Johns was um, Whedon's boss and Jeff Johns was just as bad. Okay, go above Jeff Johns. Well, he's Johns. just actually saying one of his tweets, doesn't he? So why don't you just keep going further up and actually bringing it as a case against him if you were genuinely abused on set by Whedon? I think that the reason for him doing this is because it wasn't as bad as he's making out. And the only reason he's being like this is because his role which Snyder kept saying like he had a lot of like extra stuff for Cyborg. Cyborg was the heart of the character, heart of the film that he was going to put out and it was going to be huge. Well, he was cut back to being a support character. He was hardly in the film, really. And I think this is just sour grapes that his role was cut and now Snyder's back on board. His role is getting reinstated. So he has to turn and stab at Whedon. All of this shows... To other directors who maybe were thinking, hey, maybe that Ray Fisher might be a good one to cast in this. They're going to look at how he's acting now going, oh, God, but if he doesn't get his own way, he's going to be a dick. I, I think there's this, this great thing about airing your, your dirty laundry in public. This is only a, a new, in the scheme of things, new new window of opportunity for people to talk about. Yeah. If if anyone does have a grievance, then you're, you're absolutely right. Report it to the correct authorities within your industry. Uh, and especially now would be the time right, but not to air it in public, because there'll always be contrasting contrasting points of view. My second point is is, is the rise of, of uh, social media bullying for anybody who expresses a, uh, an opinion, uh, <laughs> an opinion, an opposite point of view on it. When we weren't there, it all works on speculation. We talked about speculation. And we fall and foul for it, yeah. but we have to fess up that it, it is. And we say now, uh, this is purely speculative. But it has got to stage where online bullying with with certain groups aimed at an industry. Why has that happened? Is it is because online you feel you've got a voice and you're feeling you can make a difference to worlds and organizations you've never had any input into before? There's a story going round about one of the actors on The Last of Us Part 2 being bullied because of her character. Yeah. What is all that about? Are these people for real? If they Toxic don't like the game, dangerous. fine. But you don't send death threats to an actor who played a villain or you, or to the creators of the game or the creators of a movie because you don't like the decisions they were made. This is not your, not your world and not your fight. Re related to all the... Um aspect of the cult of Snyder attacking people. Now, Kevin Smith, and we know how Kevin Smith loves to just like shine a light on himself by getting involved in everything. Well, he's got involved in it to say that a friend who he knows who worked alongside people who worked on Justice League when Joss Whedon was reshooting it has said, oh yeah, Josh was very critical about um, Snyder's pieces that he had ready and was very like dismissive of them whilst on set. So which the Snyder cultist fan base have then gone, Kevin Smith backs up Fisher, so Kevin Smith is awesome. This is the same Kevin Smith who last year, when he said the Snyder Cut doesn't exist in a releasable format because he's heard from a friend who's seen it, that it is just rough cuts and rough edits, that the Snyder fan base went, you don't know what you're talking about, Kevin, because you weren't there. Would they decide what you have to be in order to back them up? Because Kevin Smith wasn't there. So if you're going to criticise other people for not being there, stop turning around and assuming Kevin Smith knows what he's talking about. 
turns out that last year when he said about the Snyder Cut not existing in any releasable format, he was kind of right, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, because, uh, kind of right. you know, the, the 30 million or more that's getting invested in to make it releasable, mm, kind of right. But, you know, the, the Snyder fan base will just take something there and then and use it to back up whatever hate-filled minds they've got. And that's the problem. They are the toxic hate-filled minds. And, and it's not, like, to, to be absolutely fair, it's not, not just Snyder cultists. It's, it's oh, no, toxicity it's, as we it's just... It's toxic fanboys in general. Through running through all sides of it whether it's marvel whether it's uh, the last of us part two whether it's it's uh, it's marvel versus dc eventually the toxicity will destroy as a, as a fan base will destroy the foundation for what proper fans want because there'll always be this stench in the air of of, of that few and they are just a few on related dc news we have got the cavill has come out this past week and confirmed that pretty much all of the news that we've read about Superman and reported on for the past couple of months has been utter garbage. <laughs> well, that was kind of obvious because they were, they were trying to propose that, that Cavill Superman would just come in like a, was it like a, a Tony Stark or a Nick Fury character? Yeah, just cameos to link things together every now and then. Which made absolutely uh, utter no sense. In his words, the, the rumours are getting wilder and wilder by the day. The amount of speculation, the stuff I read on the internet is extraordinary and sometimes frustrating. It's where you see people stating stuff as fact, like, no, that's not the case. That hasn't happened and that conversation isn't happening. Nothing is confirmed at the moment. So whether it's the news of him being cameoing in different things, the news of him already reshooting scenes for Zack Snyder's Justice League, none of it is true. <laughs> so let's just let Cavill get on with wanting to return to the character because that's the only truth that there's been in the past couple of months. He still wants to play that character in some way or another. And we'd still like him to return. He could be an amazing Superman. He just wasn't in the right Superman films. Yeah. And I would love to see what he could do as the DCEU progresses. And speaking again of the DCEU... And, and talking of releasing uh, a cut to which there is now a hashtag... Yes. Um, so, way back... After Tim Burton had finished with his two Batman films, Joel Schumacher took over the reins, as we, we discussed when we were looking back on Schumacher's work last episode. Now, this has been speculated about for about a decade, that there's an extended cut of Batman Forever lurking around somewhere. And it seems now... There's a movement going on. Yeah, in, initially looking to add about 38 minutes on, there's now speculation that it could be even three hours to three hours ten of film, like against the two hours ten of the original film. So there's a significant chunk of extra material there that people are campaigning and starting a movement to get put in, restored and released as part of a special release since the passing of Schumacher as a way of, you know, giving some good credit to his memory. Yeah, now apparently in the Warner Vaults there is this extended cut, which will no doubt be longer dialogue scenes but there it does purport to longer scenes involving uh tommy lee jones as two-face doesn't it yeah um two-face i mean even when the film first came out i quite enjoy batman forever i don't think it's a complete disaster but one thing that really upset me in it is i love the character of two-face but in that film he he felt nothing more than a henchman he was secondary to the riddler and it was like the Riddler makes all the decisions and Two-Face just like, oh, yeah, I'll do that, yeah. And he's just doing all his bidding. Well, the extra footage adds in a significant chunk of Two-Face elements, including starting off with a very dark breakout from Arkham scene at the beginning 
with Two-Face breaking out to add some backstory into how he's free and running around in Gotham. And then slowly layering in that Two-Face kind of engineers and manufactures most of the events taking place. So he's more or less the brains of the operation. And it's the Riddler who is, you know, just adding the craziness to it, which would put them more at equal footing as villains. And that is a film that I want to see. I was always so let down by the representation of Two-Face. I thought Tommy Lee Jones was great casting, but sorely underutilised. I seem to remember, is it either from an early trailer or uh, a magazine that went round about the time before the pre-internet, seeing shots of, of an escape from, from Arkham. Yeah, I, mean, I know that in re- over the past few years, I think someone took the deleted scenes from various documentaries, behind-the-scenes things, and also the DVDs, and edited together what the scene could have looked like. And that's an intriguing... I, mean, I think you can find it on YouTube if you search for it. But that gives an intriguing idea of what it could have been. It gives it the feel of the Tim Burton films at the start of it, before the film slowly becomes a bit more hyperglow halfway through. So it would have like segued from like the Tim Burton era into this new era without it being so jarring. So if you're interested, there is a hashtag. And I think it's hashtag release the 2000, which is connected to the story that we had about Joel Schumacher last week. You'll have to double check that one for yourself, folks, but that's what I've heard. What else he got? And final DC news is a character that's rumoured to be in development, but there's no actual specific details yet, is Zatanna. Interesting character, actually. Can't see a leading a movie, but then again, I've not seen what they got planned for the movie. Yeah, well, it's got, it's planned to be a live-action DCEU film, which is not to be con- confused with the DC SV Snyderverse films, or even the DCCW TV series, or the DCAU, uh, the animated universe, or the DC... Ah, I've lost track now. Um, but, calling me DC confused. But the character is the daughter of a famous magician who actually has magical powers, and she follows her father's footsteps as a professional illusionist, but also partners up with the Justice League at times due to her actual abilities of telekinesis, teleportation, telepathy, and television. <laughs> well, tell you pretty much anything. Her magical abilities mean that whenever there's magical things attacking, she's ideal to assist along the way. No details yet, but an interesting character for them to be looking towards bringing. A lesser-known character in particular. Yeah, we still need you to have to worry about the uh, uh, continuity issues within within yeah. universes, which is becoming tiresome from, from the list you've just given me. You could bring in John Constantine. You could bring in, of course, they're making noises about doing... Uh, Justice League Dark for HBO Max. So yeah. there might be some recognition of the character by the time this starts to move forward. Because one of the things they've not, not been particularly bothered about is is having characters on TV and at the big screen, like like the like the Flash, yeah. for instance. So it could work could work like that. For me, I mean I've I've said since day one that DC on film need to stop relying on Batman and Superman and start delving into their lesser known, more obscure characters. Because what made the Marvel films work is that these that Marvel were left with their B list range of characters to use for their MCU. And it meant there was no expectations and it meant that people just embraced them for who they were. I, I think that this is a good way to go and I hope that it does come through that they start to delve into these more obscure sideline characters and explore them. Anyway, Stephen King news. We quite like Stephen King adaptations, especially when Mike Flanagan's involved. Yeah, now now Mike Flanagan brought Dr. Sleep to the screen. He brought Gerald's Game. And now, from what I know, he's writing uh, Stephen Revival. King. Revival. I've not, not read. I've not read Revival. Yeah, it's um, the first draft of the screenplay is done, and Flanagan is calling it dark and cynical 
and a return to cosmic horror. And he, he suggests that the audiences expect a dark ending. Will it be as dark as The Mist? Because, man, that was the darkest Stephen yeah, King yeah. ending on a film that I've ever seen. Darker than the book. The novel, for those who've never read it, it centres on a heroin-addicted musician and a faith healer who's got a hidden agenda to try to communicate with his dead wife and child. However, they managed to tap into Lovecraftian-style horrors from Beyond the Stars instead. This was attached to uh, Josh Boone, wasn't it? Pre or it was, post New Mutants? At one point it was, but it's uh, it's moved on. And I think Mike Flanagan's proven with his two Stephen King adaptations so far that he's he's got he's got like a touch with Stephen King kind of properties similar to what Frank Darabont had with his run of Stephen King adaptations. Yeah, don't forget Mike Garris, who was connected to tons and tons of the uh, Stephen King projects. Uh, and a lot. Of the, he did the remake of The Shining TV. Yep. Let's keep our fingers crossed on this one. And hopefully that'll be a nicer King-esque kind of scare for the back end of next year. Yeah, I like Doctor Sleep. I thought it, I thought it was better than the book, I'm perfectly honest. On the subject of Lovecraftian-style horrors, Ooh. Guillermo del Toro had his Mountains of Madness Lovecraftian film in the pipeline, but um, it was seemingly dashed a few years ago when he needed a $150 million budget and Universal backed away and scrapped the idea. Well, Del Toro's still very much pushing for a way to bring it to life. I've read the screenplay for this. It's it's an amazing screenplay, and, and I would love to see it. It's one of those those movies that deserves to have been made. If you look, if you look at del toro in any interviews these days you'll notice he wears a ring all the time and he said this is why i wear this ring since the project got cancelled this is the fake ring about a fake university the one that appears in the book miskatonic university and i'm going to wear it until i make the movie they may bury me with it so he's determined to get this film made even if he dies to do it uh, mountain mountains of madness is i mean i, I i'm enamored with lovecraft stories i love his whole like mythos of cthulhu who and strange creatures from other worlds and other dimensions. And Mountains of Madness is one of his signature works. A team of Arctic, Antarctic explorers uncover the remains of strange life, which is neither animal nor plant. And then they find an ancient abandoned city in the mountains, but stirs something not of this earth from its slumber. It is pure cosmic horror. Great. We've not really seen a, a, a complete Lovecraftian film yet, have we? No. I mean, th there's been attempts to make them, but they've never really tapped into it. So, I mean, Del Toro is the kind of person who could visually get it. I mean, the closest we had to Lovecraftian was, we've already mentioned it, Stephen King's The Mist by Darabont. The creatures that are lurking in the mist are so Lovecraftian in nature. It is, I mean, that whole short story is like a love letter to Lovecraftian kind of storytelling. And so we've seen Lovecraftian-inspired stuff, but we've not seen a proper Lovecraft horror on the screen. If anyone's going to do it right, Del Toro will. So please, someone raise 150 million and throw it his way right now. <laughs> <laughs> if I win the Euro millions when it's a huge amount, I'll pay for it myself. So one of the things I wanted to mention was there's a TV series in development at the moment for uh, one of my all-time favourite horror movies, uh, even though there was a not bad remake by John Carpenter, and that's Village of the Damned. Have you heard about this? I, I heard it. I've not read much into it. Uh, so Village of the Damned is now being touted as a... As a TV series, as I said, the, the original version, uh, the black and white version, is an absolute fantastic film. But this has been brought to the screen by David Farr, who was responsible for The Night Manager and, and Hannah. Uh, he's working on the adaptation. Whether it's going to be called Mid Midwich Cuckoos after the original title of the book, I don't know. 
but an interesting way to to delve into the story. Hopefully, it's as good as the original 1960s version, which is which is fantastic. According to sources, Far is turning the novel into an eight-part uh, series for Sky, and it'll once again turn the story of a sleepy English village, quietly invaded by children uh, with otherworldly powers. Fantastic story, fantastic book, fantastic first movie, and I really like the John Carpenter version, even though people say no. I read the book at quite an early age. I've always loved the story of the Midwich Cuckoos. It's it's so creepy and eerie. It is, yeah. And I, I think an eight 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 episodes TV series could do it justice, as long as they don't go, hey, let's green light season two at the end of it. Yeah, and do something different without losing the intention. A Carpenter's version would try to be too, uh, just to stick too closely to the to the George Sanders version. On completely unrelated news, because uh, I'm not Segway Man this week. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Black Widow movie, there's more and more odds and ends getting released for it at the moment. Eventually that film's going to come out. <laughs> we, we've kind of like, we, we just don't even want to speculate on dates. One thing that has been speculated before has now been confirmed, and that's that the film will serve as a handover to a new Black Widow. Which is played by Florence Pugh. Yes, um, someone who's definitely coming into her own on film in recent years and definitely making a name for herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's not many people who've walked away from the MCU without much of a career at the moment. But yeah, Florence Pugh's fantastic. And She's according amazing. to um, And according to the director, Kate Shortland, uh, who said they didn't want to do the obvious origin story and, and play with the family aspect of, of, of Scarlett Johansson's Black, Black Widow, that, that Florence Pugh will be picking up the Black Widow costume and moving forward as a character, Yelana, who is a Black Widow in the comic books anyway, isn't she? Yeah. See, uh, those of us who know the comic books knew that this was going to happen anyway. And every time that someone online has been saying, oh, they're only going to bring um, the, like Scarlett Johansson back because they need Black Widow for the like, future of the MCU, blah, 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 blah. And every time I've gone, well, no, Florence Pugh will be the new Black Widow. Do you not get this? Why would she be Black Widow? Oh, read comics. <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of justification for me once again, where I've been predicting something and being told I know nothing about storytelling. And I did this before Endgame came out. I predicted everything that would happen in Endgame months before it came out. And people told me I was talking rubbish. You're in fact an oracle, Andy. Well, I just recognise uh, movie beats and tropes because I've watched so many films. And so when someone starts off in a two-part film saying how they had a dream about settling down and having a kid, you know they die. <laughs> <laughs> so is that for the news? Do you have anything else for us? The last thing that I want to quickly mention is um, Macquarie, who's partnering with Cruz, has delivered some of the best Mission Impossible films has been hinting that he would also like to return to the Jack Reacher series because he wasn't involved in the second film and take that franchise with Cruz in a darker edge direction, as well as he's been hinting that he's got other projects that he's been discussing with Cruz, which there's no detail spilled as of yet, but in his words, it's a very un-Tom character and we have plans for even more un-Tom characters that we've been talking about, which I'm hopeful about in the future. That's one of those perfect, uh, perfect combinations of director and and actor working together as a team in the same way that Scorsese and De Niro used to work together, yeah. that they, they're each other's muse to an to extent. Uh, I totally agree where he's taken the Mission Impossible series and made it his own. I mean, I've, funny enough, I've done a bit of a, a retrospect on Mission Impossible recently. And as of three, that's when it started to find its feet for me as a series. And then when Macquarie came on, it, it just 
It just took it beyond the TV series and turned it into its own, gave it its own identity. I mean, we have to remember that originally the whole idea behind the Mission Impossible films was that everyone would have a different director, so we'd have a different feel for each one and it could just be action adventures. But then as soon as Macquarie got involved with it, Cruz was like, whoa, 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 this guy's staying. <laughs> this guy's staying. It, you can see why they work so well together. Have you seen the first Jack Reacher movie? I have. I quite like the first one. I like it a lot. It's got a real a real 70s thriller vibe. Yeah. Um, including the car chase. And I've not seen the sequel yet. It's on my uh, my hit list for, for Netflix. But wasn't the talk, and we mentioned this on the program, about a Jack Reacher TV series coming to Amazon? There was, yeah. There's been no further rumblings on that from what I've read. But with Amazon, they, t- they tend to talk about something and then three years later go, oh, by the way, that thing we spoke about, we've, we've done it now. Here we go. So they kind of keep, I mean, it's like the Lord of the Rings TV series. There's been no news on that for ages until today when we've said that it's going to start filming again. What? (laughs) So more more Macquarie partnered with Cruz. I'm for the whole thing. All a good thing. And that's it for the news. So every week, as you know, I've been setting Andy... uh, an unenviable task of having to go through all the movies which are absolute classics that he's missed for whatever reason i think for for some time you were held for ransom uh, and couldn't (laughs) get to a a cinema or or, or a blu-ray player we've had some interesting choices we've looked at the town uh we've looked at uh warhorse last week this week i selected for andy the 2003 neo-noir mystery film directed and scored by Clint Eastwood, starring Sean Penn, Tim Robbins, Kevin Bacon, Lauren Fishburne, Marcia Gay Harden, and Laura Linney, and that film was Mystic River. It's it's interesting that I didn't get round to watching this before now, because I've got the Clint Eastwood DVD collection of all of his films up until around about 2004, sat on the shelf, and it's when I went, I think I've got this on my shelf, and I went over and it was there. <laughs> yeah, you it was didn't like, know, did you? Oh, it's still in the shrink wrap. And, and I've got a load of his films in the shrink wrap. Now, a lot of them I've seen on other services or other means, and that's why they're still in the shrink wrap. But I completely didn't realise that I've had this one on the shelf for so long. So it's been taken out the shrink wrap, and I have gave it a watch. Now, before I talk about Mystic River itself, it's worth noting that over, over the recent decade, Eastwood has become less and less of someone for me to look out for. And he's yeah, that's kind absolutely of, right. He's become a pale shadow of his former self. He can't stop ham-fistedly inserting right-wing politics into his films and even seems a tad lazy in style and tone at times. And I will never forgive him for the scene in American Sniper where he got Bradley Cooper to cradle a plastic doll instead of a baby because that scene is made laughable by how pathetic it looks. And it just shows that he, he can't be bothered to make something look good. So why should I be bothered to enjoy his films? For me, his last really strong output was Invictus in 2009, and everything since then has steadily wavered. He's made some some really odd choices over the last few years. There was the uh, the one that was set on the train uh, in France about the guy stopping uh, a, a terrorist attack, which had the real guys in it, yeah. which was derided by critics alike. And, and I've not been drawn to Clint Eastwood in a long time. For exactly the same reasons that, that you're pointing out. I've not seen yeah. American Sniper because I, I didn't agree with it politically. Uh, and I'm a great fan of, and I think he's, his body of work makes up for the for the films he's, he's been doing recently. I mean, even up to Million Dollar Babies, which is a fantastic film. He's sort of gone off the boil. And I'm always prepared to give Eastwood a chance because he does make, 
you make such a huge cross section of films like a film like Million Dollar Babies, like Mystic River, like even things like uh, uh, Space Cowboys. Those, those films I've got listed in front of me as like great examples of films from around 2003. This era, going back to 2003 with Mystic River, you know, he'd given us Space Cowboys, which is enjoyable. And it's fun. It's a fun, it's, it's it's a a fun film. Like you say, Million Dollar Baby, which is just a striking film. And then like even the double war efforts, which we've spoken about before, of Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers, which one was very generic, but the other one was very interesting. And then a film like Gran Torino, which is which is which to some extent was was the exclamation point on a career to a large degree. So this going back to Mystic River was refreshing and it reminded me of how solid he can be as a storyteller, especially when tackling pretty dark material. Well, it is. This is based on uh, the novel by Dennis Lehane. Uh, and we and there is a sort of spiritual connection with this to the town, both set in Boston. So the story is about three boys while playing hockey in, in Boston in, in the mid-70s, spot wet concrete, write their names into it when a car pulls up with two men, one pretending to be a police officer, the other, uh, the other a priest. One gets out, berates the boys and their action and tells Dave, one of the kids, to get into the car. The men basically kidnap and sexually abuse him for four days until he escapes. The story then picks up 25 years later as these boys are grown and they still live in Boston, even though they've drifted apart. One of them is now an ex-con running a neighborhood convenience store. One is a police detective and Dave now is a a blue collar worker who's continually haunted by the abduction and rape that, that happened. Battling those demons. Yeah, and it's a fantastic cast, as I said at the top end. Sean Penn, uh, Tim Robbins, who plays Dave, Kevin Bacon, who plays the cop, uh, Lawrence Fishburne. Why did this film work for you? And we said it's a pretty grim film. It worked for me. I mean, because the, the story aspect that it then picks up when the 25 years later is that Jimmy's daughter is found brutally murdered. And Dave, on that same night, returned home to his wife covered with blood and telling a story about a mugger he beat and thinks he killed. And so the fingers of suspicion are on Dave who has battled these demons through all his life and could be, could be a broken man who has gone and killed a young girl. And it's seeing these once friends all brought together through this mystery, but from different aspects. One of them is pursuing the truth as a me- member of the law. One is the father who's lost the daughter, but also has a dark background himself and is a very edgy character. And then there's the one who's a normal guy, nervous, jittery, and a shadow of a man because of the abuse that he suffered. And it's the performances of those three, Kevin Bacon, Sean Penn, and Tim Robbins, who are all cast in the perfect roles for their strengths. Each of them showing the quality of work that we really, we re- I really miss this quality of work from these kind of names. Robbins is perfectly nervously jittery, and y- you genuinely see the, the life that he struggled to build around him. Yeah, he's got a wife, he's got a kid of himself, but he's still completely unsure of himself. He wakes up in tears and, you know, you know that this is a wreck of a man and he has been ever since his four days of captive abuse as a child. Sean Penn, I mean, I'm never drawn to a Sean Penn film, but every time that I see him in a film, I adore yeah, everything you. he does with to him. With you on that. He's such a, a dependable actor who really puts everything in and him playing this hard-edged, mysterious ex-con who you suspect is still involved in crime. Um, and he surrounds himself with rather thuggish kind of friends. But maybe he's just like, that's just the people who he's been acquainted with. But he's got that edge to him throughout. And he's got that look to him throughout that you never know when he's going to snap and break. And you feel that if one crack shows in his exterior, 
he'll explode. You're right. I mean, the cast are exceptional. The acting is exceptional. And it, it is a somber drama. But and, it, and, it's, and it's told in, in, in lots and lots of different layers. And it's all about tragedy. And it's all about, about coming to terms with tragedy. And Tonally, think- it's very similar to Gone Baby Gone. Yeah. It's a very subdued, foreboding and menacing kind of story that plays out. And you can't and shake it, can you, afterwards? It, no. It, it really it, gets into you, gets into your psyche, gets into your head, uh, uh, and, it, and it haunts. And that's what I remember walking out after seeing this the first time, that it, that it stayed with me and haunted me. Uh, and, and Eastwood is at the top of his game. It's, uh, it's such a absolutely. confident film. It's the, he's got confidence in the direction. He's got confidence in the use of the cast. He's, I mean, we've, we've mentioned the top three cast there, but, you know, kudos to Lawrence Fishburne as well, who absolutely brilliant as Bacon's um, partner into the case. Uh, it, it's a film that I thoroughly was caught up in. And I'll be honest, and I only got to say that I only got round to watching it this morning um, because something it's still with you. One thing after another got in the way of me watching it over this past week. And so this morning when I woke up, it was like, right, we're going to record today, so I'm going to watch it. So it's still lingering at the back of my mind. And whilst initially I've given it a four out of five, I'm feeling that it's one of those films that the more that I think on it, the, the more I'm going to love it. It really does. You, you say it partners well with like other Boston films like The Town. Yes, it does. It's, you know, it makes me not never, never want to go to Boston because it looks <laughs> like it's a crime-filled den. <laughs> but it's a haunting, haunting film about... About tragedy. Friendship and how tragedy can completely decimate it. It's not, ju- it's not just like the current tragedy of the investigation of the 19-year-old daughter who's been killed, but it's the tragedy when they were kids that initially broke them up. And there's one moment in the film that the adult version of Dave gets in the back of a car in similar kind of circumstances that he doesn't really want to get into the car and the car disappears down the road in the same way that the early scene of him as a child being abducted does with him looking back through the window. And that knocked me because that moment in the film later on, when it's echoed again, you realize where the story's going. It's well worth seeing. It's a film that was nominated for Academy Awards for best picture director, uh, actor for, for Sean Penn, adapter screenplay, supporting actress for Harden, uh, best supporting actor for Tim Robbins, uh, oh, oh, Ben and Robbins, if you remember, were in their perspective categories for this. And it was also the last film that Eastwood was credited as composer for the score. All around, a great movie. Not necessarily a film you'll, you'll be drawn to to watch again, but a film that will stay with you. And a, a, like every good mystery will have you, have you playing out in your head time and time again. Absolutely recommended. Okay, so for next week, Andy, I'm going to lighten up the tone a little bit. Gave you a couple of choices when we were talking about it earlier. So I think, from what I remember, I think we're going to go with Martin Scorsese's Hugo. Now, you've not seen that, right? I've not seen Hugo, no. So next week, I'm intrigued to know your thoughts on that. Okay, so because cinemas have been closed and we've had nothing to review as far as films go... What we have been doing each week is been taking a deep dive into some classics, some favourites, some films that we've not even been keen on. Last week we did Lost Boys. This week we're going in a completely different direction and we're going to be talking about one of the greatest film comedies I think ever made and that is Airplane. You ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir, I've never been up in a plane before. Peter Graves. You ever seen a grown man naked? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. My name is Roger Murdoch. I'm an airline pilot. 
Leslie Nielsen. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Lloyd Bridges. Johnny, what can you make out of this? This? Well, I could make a cap. What a brooch, a pterodactyl, could you get um... Robert Stack. All right, Steve, let's face a few facts. And we hope you enjoy the rest of your flight. Julie Haggerty. By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? Can you fly this plane and land it? Robert Hayes. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. All right, now, everybody, get in crash positions. The most incredible adventure the screen has ever created. He's coming right at us! The big news is... I mean, you can't go more polar opposite to Mystic River. <laughs> no, you can't. I mean, this is a film that came out in 1980. And I remember seeing it at the cinema. And literally, it's the first time I've ever watched a film where I have, uh, uh, to quote, you know, uh, 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 such a cliche, had people laughing down the aisles because that was me. I was falling out of my chair with how funny this is. It was directed by David and Jerry Zuka and Jim Abrahams. Uh, it starred uh, Robert Hayes, Julie Hegarty, features classic turns by Robert Stack, Lloyd Bridges, Peter Graves, Leslie Nielsen, who became a, a star again after this, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, Lorna Patterson. It, it's a parody of, of those classic disaster films, particularly 1957 film Zero Hour and, of course, the airport film series. It's surreal. It's silly. It's got uh, it, it, it spoofs. It's got slapstick comedy. It's got visual and verbal gags. Um, it's it's got oddities of humour. It's an absolutely brilliant, quotable comedy. Oh, I had so much fun going back and revisiting this. I, I mean, this is a film that I go back to at least once a year, anyway. And each time that I do. I'm still laughing out loud. I'm proper erupting with belly laughs. And what makes it work? is that even though it's a farce and a spoof, it's all playing ve played very seriously. It, it plays straight, absolutely. It plays no like one is mugging the camera. Everyone is playing it really as though it's this is normal. And the best you know, iconic casting of Leslie Nielsen, who up until that point always played very straight-laced characters. I mean, he'd been on things like Poseidon Adventure as the captain of the ship. He was always a dramatic actor. And... To suddenly have him in this farcical kind of role, but still playing it that same straightness, it became his shtick for all the films going forwards. And yeah, if we hadn't have had a airplane, we wouldn't have got like the Naked Gun series. We wouldn't have had like Police Squad TV series, the Naked Gun films, and that great career that he got. But as well as like that key casting. Kudos to them for the casting of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Things you would never normally hear in a sentence. One of the funniest gags of the whole film, and it still completely creases me up, is having him cast, and he is basically playing himself, playing a, playing a pilot. <laughs> there, there's so much in this film, and, it, and just to, to take one gag would do it a disservice, because there's there's <laughs> if you don't like one gag, then 10 seconds, there's another one. There's all the background humour, stuff there's that's happening at the edge, edge of frame. There is uh, uh, di amazingly funny dialogue. There, there's physical gags. There, there's spoofs and parodies, the classic staying alive scene. 
Oh, uh, <laughs> I had to the guy next to me to pinch me to make sure I wasn't dreaming, and then the guy backs off. <laughs> There's just so much in it to to you can't even start to talk about aeroplane because it, I, it is in its truest sense, it's a gag fest. There is a gag every every two or three seconds. You 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 walk you walk into that and you you start laughing and you do not end right up to the end of the final credits and you've got to stick around for the final credits because there are gags in the final credits as well yep it is one of the greatest funniest films ever and even to this day you you find that you are quoting lines without realizing you're quoting lines it's become that much a part of of our of our psyche it was a, it was a deliberate choice by zucker zucker and abrams to get the casting to be picked from people who were not known for comedy they wanted them to be straight delivering. They wanted the satire to work so much better because you don't expect these people to be funny. Peter Graves, Robert Stack, marvellous. So Jonathan Banks is in there, which um, up until recent years I didn't really spot. But now that he's so well known through Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul as playing Mike, seeing him in an early role is quite jarring and then makes me laugh just because seeing him in the presence of one of these films gets me completely. And again... You look back at his early work and he was always like just a background character in a very serious film. Ethel Merman popping up in there in a, a, a very notable cameo. It's marvellous casting done completely unexpected. And uh, the announcers who argue about the white zones and the red zone at the beginning of the film were actually the real life couple who do the announcements at LA International as well. I mean, just just going through it just now, when you say one gag, it leads instantly to thinking of uh, of, uh, of another gag. I mean, you could, you could argue that it's juvenile and silly. But that's what makes it makes it so good. It's 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 uproarious spoof comedy. It's it's just packed with quotable lines. Uh, as I said, slapstick gag and everything endures. It never feels dated. It's never been bettered. Even on their own films, even the Naked Gun series. This this was the the archetype for it, and it's still by far one of the the, the funniest films ever, if not the funniest film ever. It's, it's where the modern day parodies kind of miss the mark is because the modern day scary movies and your date movies and epic movies and all that, they rely on trying to deliberately do references to current affairs and celebrity cameos. So they'll have someone mockingly like pretend to be Britney Spears shaving her hair off and looking mad. And it's like, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. That instance of when Britney Spears went through that stage in her life was comical enough as it is. We do not need it to be parodied because it's already a parody in itself. These films, like Airplane, played everything straight. It doesn't try to be funny. It just lets the funny happen. Yeah. And, and you just there to to uh, to witness it and just enjoy it. I, I, I've never met anybody who who's who's not laughed all the way through this this film i think it's it's such a universal universal film that you can watch time and time again you'll always see something different in it you'll see something new and you'll go back to it it's like the best greatest greatest hits album ever because you keep going to it and going that works that works that works nothing in this film falls apart nothing in this film isn't isn't perfect it is ridiculously funny and and all the better for it great film cost 3.5 million to make and made that back within the opening weekend finishing around about 158 million during the run kick-started the comedy careers of quite a few people who popped up frequently in zucker zucker abrams films afterwards and i definitely was a marker point for the start of the 80s absolutely can't recommend it enough 
Okay, so uh, next week we'll do another deep dive. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us at The Film File, you've got any views on anything we've talked about, any recommendation, any news, we insist you come over and get in touch with us via... Over on Twitter, if you look for at Film File UK, there we are. And please, if you've enjoyed the show, and even if you've kind of just kind of liked it, subscribe to it. It makes us very, very happy and it will help us continue to build the show and to do more things that we've got planned for the future. So today I woke up to the terrible news that probably my all-time favourite film composer, a legend really, uh, can't, can't be spoke about without using the word legendary, Eno Morricone has died at the age of 91. A sad way to start your day. When Andy and I first talked about uh, what we should do about this, what we thought what we'd talk about is talk about some of our our favourite soundtracks that he's done. He was known for his inventive scores that became the soundtrack to the Spaghetti Westerns films, especially directed by Sergio Leone. Uh, it was prolific. He probably worked in every sort of genre imaginable. Morricone scored more than 500 films, seven of them being for Sergio Leone. Uh, the two had met as kids in elementary school and their, their, their friendship turned into one of the, the great careers of, for, for both artists. Just the mention of Spaghetti Westerns, you can't help but talk about Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more, Good, the Bad and the Ugly, Once Upon a Time in the West, and my particular favourite, uh, A Fistful of Dynamite. Andy, what was it about Morricone that that made him such a legend and made him a, a want-to-go-to guy? I mean, Tarantino worked with him as recently as uh, The Hateful Eight. His scores are uh, they're all iconic, the haunting, majestic and memorable. They are, they are part of the film that they are in. You don't, you know, when you think the good, the bad, and the ugly, if I just say the good, the bad, and the ugly, straight away, you've got at the back of your mind, ah, 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 wah, wah, wah. Even like the, the slow piano builder, like, in the background, is always carrying the film across. And his work with Leone, absolutely majestic. There's a reason why I am a huge fan of westerns and that's because at an early age i was introduced to few dollars more good the bad and the ugly once upon a time in the west and it was the music matched with the visuals that really drew me in and ever since i've always always found myself enamored by morricone's work we've mentioned it a few episodes ago when we covered the untouchables because morricone gave a score to that which is possibly the most evocative of the era and sumptuous score that he's ever delivered. And that, for me, is my favourite one of his scores, Untouchables, the sweeping, grandiose nature of the, the score around like um, the Capone kind of sets to the dramatic score of the attack on the Canada Bridge and the taking down of the bootleggers. Everything is majestic, and I can listen to that whole soundtrack over and over again and just be reminded of that film and the experience of watching that film just from the music alone. I think what you've said there is quite true. I mean, the thing about Amorikoni is you listen to you listen to his soundtrack albums, and they're they're so evocative. You can listen to them and visualize everything that that's happening on it. He never did he never did the easy run. His scores were always slightly slightly quirky, slightly odd always that that hint of of Morricone ran through it there was much about about the visuals as about the thematic inner in inner workings of the characters the inner workings of the themes of the story uh, my favorite uh, as, as i as i mentioned was uh 
uh, a fistful of uh, fistful of dynamite, known in the states as "Don't You Sucker." It's a fantastic score. There are there are various pieces of music on that that soundtrack album that I can play readily in in their own right as just wonderful pieces of music. Let alone being a soundtrack album, and that's nothing to take away anything from soundtrack albums. But they they are uh, as much a part of of my listening as having a, a Rolling Stones track on or a Beatles song. Um, they mean that much to me. I want to just talk uh, about his relationship later on with with Quentin Tarantino, who used his work through, as I said, through Hateful Eight, but used bits in Kill Bill uh, uh, from other from other uh, Morricone films uh, and Django Unchained. And of course, what it, what happened with Hateful Eight is he took some of the unused pieces of music from John Carpenter's The Thing and, yeah. and used them in that film. But my other favorite evocative score is The Thing that. The music he produced for the John Carpenter film, which has, again, it, it just tells you everything you need to know about about that movie. It's ominous. It's cold. It, it's it's distant. It's uh, it's alien. It, it's a it's an amazing score. I know that Carpenter went in and, and added bits and bits of synth into it to give to to sort of carry it. But it's it's that the opening theme by Morricone which sets sets the style for the entire movie. Absolutely beautiful, brilliant uh, composer. Uh, and as you said, Untouchables. I could go on and on about the work that he's done. Yeah, it's, it's work with Tarantino. Hateful Eight is lent so much more by the melding of the music to the visuals, because that's a visually beautiful film as well. A load of people complain about Hateful Eight, saying that it's very late on story, there's not much happens. It's like, well, you're missing the point of this film. It's supposed to draw you in. You're supposed to be present within there. And so there's lots of great scenery set, setups, but with that score to completely capture you. And you can, you can tell how much Tarantino loved Morricone's work by how much he gave him presence in that film. And his scores were characters. His scores were the film. Take his scores away from those films and they're not a patch on what they originally were. I think we've definitely lost one a, a legend of one of the great, great movie composers ever. His, his sounds were signatures to the films that he, that he, he provided the soundtrack for. Uh, there was He's a significant part of film history. And some of the scores are more, are, are to some extent, more memorable than the films themselves. It's definitely time for me to revisit some of Morricone classics. If you're not, not familiar with his work, then shame on you. You should be as a film file fan. so that's it for another show but before we go every week Andy and I have a look at what we call our neat thing and that's something that we've either played enjoyed watched tasted anything that we think is a neat thing and we can share with you 
Andy, what is your neat thing for this week? My neat thing is possibly something that I'm going to be very disappointed with. <laughs> okay. I've been bitten a few times on this, but I still go back to this. And there's a six-episode series that acts as a prequel to the Juon series that hit Netflix this weekend. Okay. And I've got it lined up to watch this week. Now, the Juon series, um, otherwise known as The Grudge or The Curse, is a series of films that I, I have the personal curse in myself that I have to watch every single one of them. <laughs> and the good news is... The good news is that this six-episode TV series is a Japanese production, so it's drawn from the Japanese Juon films and not anything to do with that awful, awful grudge film that came out earlier this year. Best it's said, nothing to do with the US part. ones. But the bad news is <laughs> the recent output, output in the Japan franchise hasn't been that great either. But it's my curse. I am stuck in this franchise and I still want it to be great. And I'm hoping that my neat thing is going to pay off. I'm hearing good reports from it. I'm hearing a lot of people saying, you know what? It's almost a step in the right direction of the franchise. But I'm already suckered in and I'm going to be watching it anyway. I'll probably be in tears next week when we're doing um, the episode. And I'll probably decide that there's no, no more neat things in the world anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we can't have nice things. But let's see if my neat thing can be the Juon series getting back on track. Excellent. Well, well, mine has been probably the same as a lot of other people this weekend, and I finally got a chance to see on Disney Plus Hamilton. For those who don't know, it's been a a, a theatre phenomenon. Uh, hit Broadway several years ago, and uh, opened in the West End to rave reviews. And it was one of those that I, I'd, I'd heard some of the tracks from it, thought the songs were very good. I didn't know an awful lot about Alexander Hamilton, who the story is based on, who was, a, for want of a better term, uh, a political upstart, a scrappy. He was an immigrant. Uh, he joined George Washington in the fight for U.S. independence, became one of the country's founding fathers. Uh, but he was brash. He was outspoken. And he made some very, very powerful enemies, including Thomas Jefferson uh, and future Vice President Aaron Burr. It sounds like heavy going, and to some extent, it is. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting idea to take, not only do as a musical, but even more so to do as a hip hop musical. And that's down to the to the amazing talent of Lin Manuel Miranda, who, who not only stars in the uh, Disney Plus presentation of the stage show. This is not a film. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a stage show that that just happens to have been have been shot. So you're seeing. To some extent, a flat version, but which gives you the ability to take you a little bit closer to uh, into, into the characters who are performing. The score is amazing. The the uh, staging is absolutely fantastic. The choreography is 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 sublime. Everything about this, I, I absolutely loved. Now, to be honest, when it started, I was kind of thinking, "What's all the fuss about?" And then ten minutes, fifteen minutes in. I bought into it. And it's a bit like the same reason that when if you ever go and see Shakespeare or you see a Shakespeare yeah. film, it's your ear has to adjust to the I am pentameter, the, the, yeah. the, the, the rhyming, uh, uh, rhyming dialogue that Shakespeare did. Once you, you fall into it, then you get it. And I got it as soon as, as soon as that started to happen. And I enjoyed the story. There's no dialogue. All the dialogue is told through song. Uh, and what song? And absolutely, absolutely st- Stunning presentation. I would now love to see it. I'd love to see it on the big screen. Some of it is is funny. It's touching. It's emotional. It's always entertaining. It's kind of Shakespeare meets Tupac, for want of a better term. You could say shake and pack. There you go. You said it. I'm glad you did it. 
But I, the the one thing I have to point out about it, which is an absolute delight, is is Jonathan Goff. Now, if you've seen uh, Netflix Mindhunters, he's the star of that. He was also in Glee, who plays George the Third, and his only he only has three or four numbers in in the, in the actual presentation. But when he comes on stage, it's the same kind of you get the same kind of impact of when you saw Tim Curry in in Rocky Horror Show. He just takes the stage and runs with it and and makes it uh, uh and makes it his own and stands out and it's funny and touching in all the right places can't recommend it enough and that's hamilton on disney plus fantastic and that's it for another show we'll be back hopefully sometime next week but before you go i just need to say it looks like the foot is on the other hand now <laughs> <laughs>